If you would please open your Bible to the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 3. This evening we're only going to read verses 15 through 18, but this is a continuation of the entire argument that has begun in chapter 3. If you would please stand with me, let's give our attention to these words of life. What Scripture says, God says. Verse 15. These are God's precious words. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed... No man disannulleth or addeth therein or thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ The law, which was 430 years later, cannot disannul, though it should make the promise, uh, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Amen. May the Lord add his wonderful blessings to the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. Without thee, O Lord, I cannot preach. Without thee, O Lord, thy people cannot hear. Without thee, O Lord, we will not change. Without thee, O Lord, we can do nothing. But we praise and thank thee that Jesus Christ is our prophet to teach us the truth. Our priest to intercede for us and to make our prayers heard in heaven. And that he is our king to rule over these weak and feeble vessels. Oh, may our hearts rise up from the doldrums of our flesh, the the temptations and the lust of the flesh that war against our souls. And may the glory and beauty of Christ fill us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, by the authority of Jesus Christ and God the Father, passionately defended the gospel of grace that he had preached to the Galatian churches. He lived and breathed Christ Jesus and Christ's gospel and the message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners He would not let those who named the name of Christ run off the rails of gospel truth. He probed the consciences and prodded the memories of the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? The truth in this context is the gospel. 
The gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Savior. Paul had preached the gospel to them with such power that he could lay hold on their consciences. And every pastor ought to be able to do that. If you have no hooks in the consciences of your people, you're not preaching right. We should be preaching the word of God to conscience, to heart, to the new creature and calling them day in and day out to the mercies, the grace and the love of God and to obedience. Paul laid hold of their consciences. Jesus hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. If you look at it in its context, that's an astonishing thing to say. I can't get over it. I've, I've pointed that out about three times, maybe four. But to preach with the power that Paul preached with is not entirely above our reach. It's the same word the same spirit, the same God, the same gospel. Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. In other words, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul had preached Christ so vividly to the Galatians It was as though they were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. He then stirred their memories with five questions. All five were rooted in the experience of Paul's teaching and preaching. The Galatians had received the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit by believing the truth, by believing the gospel. So all five of Paul's questions can be summed up in the last one. He therefore, God, that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul knew that the Galatians knew the answer. The hearing of faith. The hearing of faith. I ask myself first. I ask the rest of you. Do you hear in faith? Or do you just seat yourself in the pew and hear yet another sermon? What scripture says, God says. Are we hearing with faith what God says? I must ask myself that regularly. And at that crucial point, Paul moves from the argument from experience to argument from Scripture. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. I said last week, that was a truth bomb with seismic shock waves for the Jews and for the Judaizers. Paul was declaring that Gentile Galatians were by faith the children of Abraham. Absolutely unbelievable to some Jews. Paul then said, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee, believing Abraham, in thee shall all nations be blessed. The blessing to all the world is justification by faith in Jesus Christ with the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit following. It isn't just, well, I'm going to heaven someday. 
Well, all regenerate people will. And we have that glorious hope set before us day in and day out. The scriptures speak to us actually from early in the old covenant scriptures all the way through the new. There is a greater reality than the world we're living in. And the day is coming when it's going to burst into our sphere. We are already members of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And we should live that way. But this blessing is faith in Jesus Christ. Life eternal and the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit. From that gospel declaration in Genesis, Paul went on to argue the curse of the law from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and then justification by faith from Habakkuk. Finally, he argued that Christ as our substitute redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? How did he do that? God made his precious son. God made his precious son to bear all his wrath in our stead. Christ was our substitute. This is at the very heart of gospel truth. We didn't get better. We didn't get good enough for God to accept us. That hasn't happened. It's not happening now. And it will never happen in this world. Christ, our substitute, redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of Satan and sin. God made his precious son to bear our penalty for all the sins that we have committed. All the sins of all God's people for all eternity washed away in the blood of the lamb. And ultimately, the promise of the Holy Spirit would come even to the Gentiles by faith. Brethren, the Spirit is spoken of so plainly in Galatians. I wonder how many of us read it and think, that's me. I'm walking in that Spirit. I'm experiencing that Spirit. I know that my God has taken up residence within me. I know that left to myself, I would run back to my vomit as a dog. Spirit of God is the promise to Abraham and it comes to every one of his children. May we learn not to quench that Holy One in our lives that we might better know the fire and love of God. Ask yourself, and it may be all of you, But ask yourself, when was the last time your heart was overflowing with the love of God? And that's exactly what we're promised. The Spirit of God that sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. Why do churches rip apart? They're not experiencing the love of God. They're hearing about it, but something's not working inside. Either they're unregenerate or we have often so grieved the Spirit that He isn't flowing and filling us with that great love, that great love for Christ, which cannot be quenched by anything but Him. The Holy Spirit, even the Holy Spirit, would fall on the Gentiles. That's what's going on in Galatia. Paul brings this up to them regularly. How did you receive that spirit? How did they know they had it? How did they know 
that things weren't right. They were listening to false teaching. So, let me just get back to this. In his astounding grace, God gave his son to save his people from their sins. This is included in this blessing to Abraham that would bless the whole world. There are people in every corner of this world that now know Jesus Christ. What God promised to Abraham is happening. I'm thankful that we have at least some part of that. I want more. But it won't come without a cost. It will not come without pushback from the enemy. So, how did the Abrahamic covenant of faith work with the Mosaic covenant and its works of the law? Circumcision, Sabbath keeping, dietary laws, etc. How, how do those two things go together? That's exactly what Paul takes up in this passage. And that's the subject of this sermon and the next, the next one or two. So this is entitled, The Priority of Abraham's Covenant. <clears throat> I cannot press again that you grasp, that you understand, that you study, that the covenants are the backbone of the Word of God. They are the revelation of God to his people. So may our merciful heavenly father. Fill us with the knowledge of his will. And in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. For the glory of Christ. And by the power of his Holy Spirit. May it be for the edification of his people. Well our first thought is this. Paul began his argument with an illustration from daily life. He was a great teacher. This is verse 15. It says, <clears throat> Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth it, no man disannulleth, or addeth thereto. Now Paul wrote that. In the power of the spirit. Now, Paul spoke pastorally then. To his erring brethren. Brethren. First words. Brethren. One of the most beautiful words in the Christian faith. It really is. Brethren, says Paul. Jesus had said, Be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. There is a family more important than your flesh and blood one. And it is Jesus' family. Jesus' brothers and sisters. I don't demean, I don't diminish our earthly families. We should love them. We should walk in them with what joy and thanksgiving that we can. Some families that are believers have all, all children professing to be Christians. Some have none. Our flesh and blood may become our own enemies. Christ said it. A man's, those of a man's household become his own enemies 
it happens. That's not just for uh, the time before Christ comes back. It's right now. The idea of family is beautiful in Scripture. But it's here for a reason. The idea of marriage, that wonderful, that beautiful, and sometimes difficult arrangement that God has ordained. It's here for a reason. It's not just for us to say, I'm lonely, need somebody. Oh, good. He likes me. She likes me. It's all fine. It's not good for man to be alone, says the scriptures. That's the first negative thing the Lord said about creation. Not good for man to be alone. Not good. He just said good about everything he'd created. But he says not good for man to be alone. But what's the purpose? It's not just a man and a woman getting together and having children. That's a wonderful thing. But it points to God's family. Everything that God has made points to his eternal purpose in Christ and his church. Husbands, love your wives a lot. No, it doesn't say that. It says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. We can't have a higher standard. As Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as the church does to Christ. What are we being told? There's something bigger than just man and wife. There's something bigger than just, oh, now I've got a home. That's all fine. But it's pointing to something. Everything God has made is loaded with symbol. Everything that he's doing is, I repeat, it is fulfilled in Christ and the church. Christ and his church. Jesus had his mother and his brethren standing outside. They had traveled a ways to see him and talk to him. They gave word to him. We're out here. We want to talk to you. Jesus was notified and he said, who's my mother well that would almost sound insulting rebellious not very nice he pointed out and he said well my mother and my brethren are those who obey my father is that an anti-family Status? No. It's pointing to the real and most important family. Once again, I'm not saying ignore or reject or look down on the idea of family. It's God's idea and it's wonderful. But there's something higher. There's always something higher. The promised land simply points to the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. It's all fulfilled in God's eternal purpose. Now, I say that to say, when Paul begins with brethren, it's very important. It's not just a, a nice religious greeting. He spilled, Christ spilled his blood so that sinners can say, brother, sister, I love you. Do you know a lot of people can't say that? They cannot say those three words and mean it. I love you. You say, this is just one word. We're going to stay here for a long time. I'm almost done. But what I want you to recognize is that this is a church in extraordinary trouble. He has rebuked them seriously and severely. But he still calls them brethren. 
He could have just started off, all right, apostates. Right? That's how some would do it. You're out of line, get in line right now. He almost had to say that to the Corinthians. You want me to come with a rod? That's kind of like saying uh, to your children, do you want a spanking? They never do say, oh, I can't wait, do they? Oh, please. In fact, just start wailing. No. But on the other hand, it's astounding that here they have failed in the greatest possible way. They're moving from the gospel. And he says, brethren. That ought to be the kind of heart that beats in us. Not just, ew, you don't agree with me. He was firm, but he was loving. And he made very clear that they were still related by family. The family of God. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. We are united by faith in Christ with familiar terms. Brother, sister. I've had people that used to be members here that say, don't call me that. I'm serious. That's like old-fashioned. No, it's biblical. It's what the blood of Jesus Christ has accomplished. You are my brother or you are my sister in Christ. It's not just a phony religious term. Now, it might be in the mouths of some. But if you mean it and can say, I love you, brother. It's not just like the 60s. In 60s, because the churches were falling into such miserable apostasy, they wanted to be more like the world, but the world was calling each other brother and sister. Hey, brother. I think we don't take every word of God as being pure sometimes. I know I haven't. There are times when I've not even realized the low view I had of some of the things that are plainly given us here in Scripture. So, though Paul has called down God's curse on anyone teaching a false gospel, and though he plainly said that they were acting as though someone had put a magic spell on them, he still addresses them as brothers. He hasn't given up yet. As a matter of fact, love fights. Love fights for the right cause. You see a brother or sister slipping away. You don't love them if you just let them go. So, brings us to the next thought, which is human covenants are unalterable agreements. Brethren, he says, I speak after the manner of men. Paul's meaning is very simple. Brethren, brothers and sisters, I will take an example from everyday life, a human illustration. The culture of Paul's day understood well the idea of covenant. A human covenant was a defined relationship, a binding agreement between two or more people. So Paul says, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Paul is saying, my brothers, my sisters in Christ, you know that if people agree to a covenant and it is made legally binding, no one can cancel it or add to it. And that brings us to verse 16. God's covenant promises were made to Abraham and to Christ. The sacred letter uh, now says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Paul now argues from the lesser, a human covenant, to the greater, God's covenant. This is a a certain way of reasoning. We read in the book of Acts regularly that Paul went to a particular place and he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them. He reasons with us in the letters that he wrote to others. He would say, if this, then much more the grace of God. These are actually ways of arguing Paul understood them, and Paul used them to great effect. And that's what he's doing right here. He's not grasping for straws. He's saying, I've got an illustration that you all understand. Once a covenant is ratified, it's unchangeable. It's permanent. They would all be saying, okay. Okay, yeah, we know that. Good. So if human covenants cannot be canceled or changed after they are ratified, how much more one of God's covenants? God made a covenant with Abraham. This is what Paul's building up to. He says, now you know that human covenants don't change. Now, God made a covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham. And it hasn't changed. This is a vital part of his argument. God made a covenant with Abraham that is set before us in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. Those are passages you should read on a regular basis. Because this is what Paul is arguing from. And what's he arguing? Christ. He's arguing Christ. He's arguing Christ. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And we are blessed with faithful Abraham, as he goes on to say. What, what, what did he mean by that? What he means is that he is the model for our own lives. He believed the word of God and it saved his soul. And if we repent of our sins and believe God's promise in Christ, he will save us. He will save us. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. Make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And... I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now let's focus right there on that last clause. Because that's what Paul does. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Paul interprets this last clause as the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What? It's right here in the text. He unfolds it. Included in that promise to Abraham are the people sitting here tonight and in any other congregation. And that will be alive a hundred years from now if if the planet survives the next decade. The blessing to the world is Jesus Christ, his glorious gospel of grace, justification by faith alone, and the inhabiting power of God's Spirit. That's the blessing to everybody that believes. And it'll be people from all over this planet. I mean, tonight in places that we cannot pronounce, God is working in his people. He is despite the globalist plan, he is going to be the king of the world. There won't be another. If I can put it this way, 
God is the original, true, and almighty globalist. He will have all the nations bowing before Jesus, his son. That's what men would like for themselves, but it's not going to happen. Jesus Christ is our king. So, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ and his church. And that's an important matter for biblical interpretation. The scriptures interpret scriptures. Over and again, the apostles take passages out of the Old Testament that are in another context, but they point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Abrahamic covenant. Now, Paul wants it clear to the Galatians that God's promise to Abraham cannot be annulled or changed. That's why he makes the comparison. He said, that even happens in an earthly covenant. It's true about God's great covenant with Abraham. It didn't disappear. You're living in it by faith in Christ. God's covenant included promises. Now, why is that important? (laughs) Because the covenant emphasizes God's work, not ours. I'll run back to that. Why does he make promises to men that he is going to fulfill? Because that's his grace. He took Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, took him where he wanted him, and then promised him. That wasn't because of Abraham. That was the glorious grace of God. The Abrahamic covenant is, was, an extraordinary act of God's amazing grace. And it's the fact that that covenant didn't change that Paul argues for the gospel the way that he does. Abraham, the, who was originally Abram, the idolater from Ur of the Chaldees, was made a child of God. And through him ultimately came our Savior. You say, what, are you sure? Yeah. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Everybody ought to take a look. Just look right at that. And a lot of people want to skip over chapter 1 because it's got that long list of names that are hard to pronounce and to remember. But what you're seeing is the unfolding of God's eternal purpose in the gospel. Whenever you get to any of those kind of parts of Scripture and you find it just a little bit tedious, just remember it's God fulfilling his word and showing you how he did it right here it's right here the book of the generation of jesus christ son of david the son of abraham son of abraham the lord took this one man who was not a jew and made the new the jewish nation and out of that nation came our savior the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, all of which is laid out for us in detail from the old covenant into the new. So, Abraham's covenant is still active in what God promised. The blessing is spreading through the world. It hasn't stopped and it won't stop until the Lord comes back. It's just like the Noahic covenant. Why are we still here? Because the Lord said, as long as the sun comes up and goes down, as long as all the seasons are changed, I'm not going to destroy the earth anymore. He will finally by fire, but you're living in the Noahic covenant. He hadn't destroyed this world. Why? Because it's the theater in which he gave his son. All of this was opening up the theater for the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Don't take the covenants lightly. So, <clears throat> what he wants to point out now in, in uh, verse 17 is equally important. It says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. This is great news. That may sound just kind of like, hmm, and something nice that got lost in the King James English. Brethren, this is glorious. This I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God, remember, if it's confirmed, it's unchanging. Confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot cancel that it should make the promise of none effect. In other words, Moses does not cancel out what God promised to Abraham. And what God promised to Abraham was worldwide blessing. And it's still blessing for all those who repent and believe. They're a part of, is that not what God did with you? Lost. Absolutely lost in a world of self-worship. Everything's about me. It's all about me. I'm not happy or I'm lonely or I'm happy. What's the matter with you? I mean, all of these things are just what we are without Christ. I got to have my stuff or I'm not happy. I got to have this or I'm not happy. You have Christ. You have everything you need for eternity. Amen. Everything. And it's all because of that Abrahamic covenant. It's all because of that former pagan. God took him and said, now, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. The whole world. The Abrahamic covenant could not be and can never be changed or repealed. But the Mosaic covenant, as we learn, and we'll give a little more time to that in the future, was an intermediate covenant. And it has faded away in the light and the glory of Christ and the new covenant. And that brings us to number four. God's promises and God's law were incompatible in the matter of justification. Verse 18, Paul says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. God gave it to a God gave. Again, this is God's grace. If the inheritance be of the law, it's not of promise. You earned it. But the only thing you've earned by the law is your damnation because you haven't kept it. The curse of God. All those outside of Christ are under the curse of God because the law still stands. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled that law on our behalf. And that's where our righteousness comes from. He had the righteousness that's in the law. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who walk in the spirit, not according to the flesh. Flesh in that context is walking according to the law. And thinking, look, I can take this now to God and say, you see, I did better last week. Or this week than I did last week. Here, you love me a little bit more. Now that's never going to happen. God loved you so much that he gave his son. And his son kept all those laws that you and I could never keep. And he kept it perfectly. So that when we believe on our substitute, 
God grants us our substitute's righteousness. Perfect righteousness. When you fail tomorrow and your flesh says, see, you're not a big deal. This is what you do always. You're exactly right. And left to myself, I would go to hell. But I have the righteousness of Jesus. You don't have to argue with Satan. Just hold forth Christ's robe. Now, if the inheritance be of the law, what's the inheritance? Well, there's a whole lot of talk in the commentaries about this. (laughs) A lot of ink spilled on that subject. I presently, listen to the adverb, presently, I presently hold tentatively to a particular view and that the inheritance is the glory of the new creation, the glory of a new world, a new heavens, a new people. That's where everything's going. What other inheritance do we have right now? And I think that's why Paul changes the word, uh, the land in Romans chapter 4, he changes it to the world. Have you ever noticed that little change? It says we inherit the world, not in the state that it's in. We have a glorious, we have a glorious country, a glorious nation, a glorious kingdom coming. Kingdom come. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So, I want to bring this to a close, this overview of how these verses work together and what they're pointing to. Now, if you've got a different definition of inheritance, that's fine. We can sit down and talk about it at lunch sometime. I'm always glad to hear what you're thinking. But I want us to consider then what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 as we bring this to a close this evening. Paul says, What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? What did he find out? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. He's got something to boast in. If he's right with God, if he's righteous by God because he kept some formula of law, He's got something that he can brag about. Look how good I am and how wretched you are. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Paul's quick to make that uh, very, very clear. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. Same passage. That he's quoted here in Galatians. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace. But a debt. If you work for it you get your paycheck. Right? But your salvation is not like that. Never has been never will be. God doesn't owe you. God doesn't owe me anything but hell. That's what he owes me. But he put all my hell on Christ. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Righteousness without works. There's a t-shirt for you, Gage. Righteousness without works. Saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Glory to God. Your iniquities, your sins, those anchors that would drag you to the lowest hell are pardoned in Christ Jesus. In His 
agony is my eternal life, my righteousness. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Wait a minute, that sounds a little bit like the promise, doesn't it? I'm going to bless the whole world. Through you, Abraham. That's right. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is all the blessing. It's connected to that promise because it's connected to Christ, the seed who received the promise. And we're in the seed by faith. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Now I used to get lost in that, but it's, it's really very, very simple. He's just saying... When did that promise come to him? It was before God gave him the mark of circumcision. So when he was in uncircumcision, well, what's that telling us? Well, he was a Gentile. He was a Gentile. Do you see how it's all coming back together? Gentiles were outside the Jews. but The Jews were made up of a Gentile who bowed to God in faith. And God made a great nation out of that man. And out of that man came a great Savior. Out of that nation came a great Savior. So, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. In other words, it's a seal that he believed God before God gave him the mark. The mark doesn't make you God's people. The faith of Abraham is what makes you God's people. And that's how the Gentiles could be brought in later. They didn't have to be Jews. It infuriated the Jews. It confused the Jews. But it's because they didn't understand their own scriptures. The Gentiles are mentioned over and again in the prophets. Those Gentiles are going to come to the king. They're going to come to the great glory of God. And some of them are going to be carrying Jews to him. Oh. Well, the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham which he had being yet uncircumcised for the promise that he should be the heir of the world. Now, Paul either made a very serious mistake here or he, like many others, began to understand as Christ told him what everything in the Old Testament pointed to. You cannot escape the symbols, the types that fill the Bible so the world the world he'll be the heir of the world in other words what are we going to receive the glory of eternity ruling and reigning in the new heavens the new earth the banquet the banquet the wedding banquet of the lamb it's all coming we're a day closer we are a day closer to this where the world will indeed be ours We're just walking around in it right now like Abraham. But the day is coming when it's renewed and restored. And we'll be walking in it as ours. By the way, the word joint heirs is very important. We're going to be joint heirs. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, well, you get a piece of the pie, maybe a little bigger than mine. But I feel better because I've got a little bigger one than they No, joint heirs means all of it belongs to us. That's 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 what the people who want to rule the world, they think they're going to have something kind of like that. No, they're not. They're going to have hell on earth. They don't realize what they're about to have. 
and not going to be God's. So let me say, let's draw this to a close. <clears throat> that the, the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. You see this constant going back and forth between faith, promise, law. All these words have a place. But you see, the law here didn't disannul God's promise to Abraham. In fact, Abraham discovered that he was righteous by faith. And that's the way it is for every one of God's people. You will be righteous with God one way. And that is faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior. Jesus Christ, Abraham's seed, the one to who the promise was given. So, as we close this this evening, we've set the stage for a little deeper dig uh, as we work through this. But it's vital for us to know. Remember, one of the first things when you're trying to interpret the scripture is you need to find where you are in the story. Is something being said in Exodus? Is something being said in Galatians? It's all God's word. But you've got to know, uh, what covenant am I in? What are the people believing to which this was written? What was the problem or what was the issue or what was the blessing to this group or that group or who I am now? I'm in the middle, and so are you, of the new covenant. Which is the wonderful blooming of Abraham's promise. That promise was made to him and Christ. Remember where you are when you're trying to interpret this book. And we will come back to the point and the argument that Paul is making here. But it's vital. Let me say, there's nothing different right now between us and Abraham in the sense that he was taken out of his pagan darkness by believing God's words. And that is the only way those of you who are not believers will be righteous by believing God's words. His words about Jesus, his son. Whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you may be thinking, believe God's words. What scriptures speak, God speaks. Amen. Father, we thank you for the mercy that thou hast shown us tonight. Oh, the beauty and the glory of thy covenants, the unfolding of thy eternal purpose, that holy covenant of redemption, that holy agreement somehow we can't grasp between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to save us. And yet, O oh God, as we read thy book and we see the unfolding revelation before us, it all comes to the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. Oh, how we thank thee for our Savior. Oh, how we thank thee for him who died upon Calvary's cross. Oh, how we thank thee for him who is seated at thy right hand, O oh God, and interceding for us and all thy beloved blood-bought people. Thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for righteousness. Now bless thy people. Father, may we all go home realizing Abraham's God is our God. And we're taking part of the sweet blessing that thou didst promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me. Finally, brethren, finally, farewell. Be perfect.
That means be mature. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Amen. Let's go in the name of Christ.